All right. Well, if you guys have been here at all over the last three months, you know that we've been in a series on the book of Revelation. And we are going to continue in that book in the near future. I'm not chickening out of uh, the next two-thirds of it, but uh, we're going to take a break for the Advent season, and we're going to do something a little bit more in the spirit of the season. Uh, And what we're going to be doing is starting a new series called The Sounding Joy, uh, where we're going to be looking closely at the lyrics of Christmas carols. Around this time of year, there are songs that we hear, and um, we hear them not just in church, but we hear them everywhere. We hear them on TV, uh, in department stores, and a lot of these songs beautifully express Christian doctrine. Uh, But what happens for many people, uh, both within the church and outside of it, is we sing these songs or we listen to these songs, but we miss the depth of what they're saying. And that's for a couple reasons. Uh, One reason is because they use language that we might not be familiar with, language that hasn't been used maybe for like a century. Um, Sometimes it's because we're so accustomed to hearing these songs that we don't really hear them. You know what I mean? And sometimes it's because when we hear these songs, we're just focused on the melody or the nostalgic feelings that they produce within us, and so we're not really attentive to what they're saying. That's why, you know, some people who don't even believe in God or don't even believe in Jesus happily sing these songs during this time of year because they have positive associations, nostalgia uh, associated with them. But what, what I want us to try and do this Christmas season is to really understand and appreciate the words that we sing. Now, before we get into this, I want to recognize that as good as some of these Christmas carols might be, we do have to acknowledge that they are not the same thing as the Bible, right? They're not Holy Scripture. Uh, they can be misleading. For example... Uh, one Christmas carol that's very popular that I have a quibble with is Away in a Manger. Uh, that song has a line in it, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, that might not seem so bad, but it's misleading because that line implies that Jesus wasn't like a normal baby, right? Because normal babies cry, and If they don't cry the night that they're born, that's a cause for concern, right? They're probably not healthy if they're not crying. Um, But this song seems to imply, well, Jesus, even though he was a baby, I mean, he was too holy to cry, right? Crying is annoying. (laughs) So baby Jesus, he didn't do that. But if Jesus was fully human, and it wasn't just pretend, but Jesus was actually human, then he would have been subject to the usual biological functions that human beings are subject to, which for infants means crying, right? And it also means needing to be nursed and needing to have his diaper changed and all those things. Jesus wasn't just pretending to become human. He actually was human. So I don't like that line in a way in a manger because it suggests that he wasn't really fully human. So we have to be careful not to assume that just because a carol has been around for a long time and it talks about Jesus, that it's necessarily going to give us the truth, right? We have to check what these carols are saying alongside Scripture, which we definitely will be doing. 
Uh, but for this series, I picked some of the carols that I think do the best job, uh, the ones that get it right and have good theology in them. And one of the carols that really gets it right is the one that we just sang uh, right before this, which is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This one has really stood the test of time. Uh, the first version of its lyrics were written in 1739 by a man you might be familiar with. His name is Charles Wesley, uh, the brother of John Wesley, famous pastor, theologian, preacher, evangelist. Um, he was the founder of what's now known as the Methodist Church. Um, and so he wrote these lyrics in 1739, and then it took about 100 years before the lyrics were united with the melody that we now know as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, so this song, in its current format, has been sung now for almost 200 years, 179 years. And because it's that, that old, it uses some language and some phrasing that's unusual for us. I still remember as a kid that I had no idea what it meant to hark something, and uh, nor did I understand why there were so many angels named Harold, <laughs> and, you know, why we're harking them. Just, it's weird. Not that I really cared, because I liked the song, right? But it didn't make any sense. Now, since then, I've come to realize, as I'm sure many of you have, that to hark means to listen, right? To pay attention. And to herald means to announce or to proclaim, right? So a more modern title for Hark the Herald Angels, Angels Sing might be something like Listen to the Announcing Angels Song. But I don't think we should change it because that doesn't go to the music as well. So we'll just leave it the way it is. And of course, what this carol recalls is a very memorable scene in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's the one that Linus recites so perfectly in A Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, there are shepherds out in the field the night Jesus is born, and an angel appears to them and announces that he has good news of great joy for all people. And that good news is that a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, what does that mean, he is Christ the Lord? That word Christ is very significant, Contrary to what many people think, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is a title. It's uh, the Greek word for Messiah. Uh, for many centuries, the Jews had been expecting, based on the words of the prophets, that one day a special king would come and he would make things right with the, wor with the world and he would fulfill the promises of God. And that special king was known as the Messiah. So when the angel calls Jesus the Christ, he's saying, this Messiah, this king that you have been waiting for for centuries and centuries, has finally arrived. Christ the Lord. And then we're told that that angel is joined by a great company of the heavenly host. All those angels named Harold, they join right in with him. And they say together, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. It doesn't actually say that they sing it, but we'll grant a little artistic license there with the song, okay? <clears throat> so the carol is inspired by this scene, and it doesn't just recount the literal words of the angels, but it tells us the significance of their, their words and the appropriate response to their words. Uh, 
I know we just sang this, but I'll read it again. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. In other words, join this celebration of praise that's going on in the sky right now. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Now that first verse is great, but the one I really want to focus on this morning is the second verse. That's the one with the most meat in it. Um, there's some great stuff to talk about there. So I'll read it. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now, there's a few lines in there that I want us to focus on this morning. First one is, late in time, behold him come. Now, that one sounds a little strange, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus was off schedule, behind schedule, right? Are the angels saying, behold, the king is here. He's late, but he's here. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be right because scripture tells us that Jesus actually came exactly when he was supposed to come. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. So Jesus wasn't late. He showed up at exactly the time he was supposed to show up, according to the plan of God. So was Wesley wrong to write that lyric? Well, no, because there's actually another way to understand the line. For example, if I said, Late in the summer, behold, the school year begins. Uh, would I mean that the school year had arrived late? Well, not in Connecticut, no, right? Because that's when the school year typically starts, late in the summer. And in a similar way, when Wesley writes, late in time, behold, Jesus is born, late in time, behold him come, uh, he's not saying that Jesus was born off schedule, he's saying that Jesus has been born after many, many years of anticipation, that, that anticipation for the promised Messiah, right? And Jesus' birth signals the entrance into the last part of God's plan for rescuing the world. God has this plan for history, for, for human history. Well, yeah, for all of history, God has a plan. And Jesus' birth signals that we are living in the last days, the final days of God's redemptive plan, Okay. Make sense? There's many times in the, in the New Testament where it's said that we are living in the last days or, or the final days. And what that means is that we are living in the last leg of history before God's plan is finished. God's plan for restoring and redeeming the world and establishing his everlasting kingdom. Uh, so that's why we can say, late in time, behold, Jesus comes. Late in God's redemptive plan. So let's look at the next, the next line here. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Offspring of the virgin's womb. One of the most well-known biblical miracles is the miracle of the virgin birth. And Wesley wants us to be reminded of this miracle because this miracle reminds us Jesus is unique. He is 
not cut from exactly the same cloth as the rest of us. All of, all of us have a biological mother and a biological father, right? But Jesus is unique. Jesus has a biological mother, but not uh, an earthly biological father. Jesus' conception is miraculous, and that is a sign to us that he is special. He's not cut from the same cloth as everybody else. Now, I don't know about you, but I have found that the virgin birth, for some reason, uh, seems to be one of the miracles that people have the hardest time accepting or believing in. Um, it seems to be one that skeptical people especially like to make fun of. Uh, people will say things like, how could anyone believe in a virgin birth in this day and age? I mean, <laughs> now we know that virgins don't have babies. But when people talk like that, they're displaying some ignorance. Um, hopefully that doesn't sound too harsh, but they are displaying some ignorance because what they're failing to recognize is that people in those days also understood that virgins do not have children, right? They understood cause and effect. They knew about this. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, when Mary is told by an angel that she is going to have a child, what's her first response? How can this be, since I'm a virgin? See, Mary knows how this works, right? And when her fiancé, Joseph, finds out that she's pregnant, the first thing he does is start to make plans for how to divorce her. Why? Because he knows virgins don't get pregnant, right? God actually has to send an angel to Joseph to get him to understand that Mary is telling the truth, right? So don't dismiss the virgin birth because you assume people in the past were ignorant and they didn't understand how things work, right? They found this just as unbelievable as you and I do. In fact, the whole point of the virgin birth is that it is an unbelievable event, right? It's not something that normally happens, and if it was, it wouldn't matter. That's the whole idea. It's a miracle. Here's the way I think about the virgin birth. If I believe that there is a God who created the entire universe out of nothing, why would I ever think it's impossible for him to create a baby without a sperm cell? I think he can do that. <laughs> Not too much of a stretch for my imagination. Now, if we don't believe that there is a God who created the world and who is more powerful than the world that he's created, then we're always going to have a very limited idea of what's possible, right? Because the only thing that can ever be possible is the natural laws that we observe in the universe, right? But if there is a God who established those laws and has authority over those laws, uh, then that God could override those laws if he chose. And in which case, the scope of what is possible dramatically expands, right? So the virgin birth is a miraculous sign that there is a God who is more powerful than the world that he created, and that with him all things are possible. So let's keep going uh, in verse 2 of the song. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. 
Now, this is the point where the song celebrates the fact that this newborn king, he's not just a great king, he's not just the fulfillment of these uh, messianic prophecies, this is actually God in human flesh. We can't really talk about the significance of Christmas without talking about the idea of the incarnation, the incarnate deity, the idea that God became man. Uh, this is something that the New, Te New Testament clearly teaches in many places, uh, but one of the places where it teaches it the most clearly, my favorite, is the Gospel of John in the very beginning, the prologue of the Gospel of John. And uh, John talks about, when John talks about Jesus in the prologue, he refers to him as the Word. And I'm not going to get into right now exactly why he uses that, that term. Um, but just trust me on this, okay? When he says the Word, you can substitute Jesus in there and the meaning would remain the same. Uh, but this is what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, if you're like any normal human being, and you're paying attention, you hear that and you go, what? <laughs> because John just said that Jesus was with God, and he was God. He was with God and he was God. How in the world can God be with God? What? You should be scratching your heads. So what's the answer? How can God be with God? Well, the answer that the church has given through studying the scriptures and you know, trying to put this all together, and I would argue through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, is this idea that we call the Trinity. The Trinity. And what that means is that God is a, has always been a perfect relationship of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one is fully God, each one is with God, and each one is God. Now, at this point, if you're in dialogue with a Muslim or a modern-day Jew, they will say, well, you don't believe in one God. You believe in three gods. I remember once I was doing an interfaith dialogue at UConn when I was in campus ministry, and there was a Q&A after um, some of us gave some presentations, and someone had submitted, one of the, the Muslims in attendance had submitted a question to me, and he had phrased it as a multiple-choice question. It was, how many lords do you have? And A was one, B was three, and C was, I don't know, or something like that. And, and that just shows, sometimes when we talk about the Trinity, as Christians, people from other faiths, they're asking, they're wondering, wait, you can't. You say you believe in one God, but then you talk about three, and it doesn't make any sense. Now, if somebody says, it seems like you believe in three gods, not in one, the Orthodox Christian response is, no, we believe in one God. We believe in one God. But that God is a perfect relationship of three. Now, if that just sounds like nonsense, 
I want to submit two, two things for your consideration. Okay. Number one, we have to think about what we mean when we say God is one. What does it mean for something or someone to be one? Now, I want to suggest that usually when we talk about something being one, our, our understanding of that oneness is a physical oneness, right? Like, um, there's one iPhone, and what we mean by there is one iPhone is that there's this chunk of matter that is distinct from its surroundings, right? But something that Jews and Muslims and Christians can all agree on is that God is not a chunk of stuff, Right? God is not a physical chunk of stuff. So, when we say that God is one, we're talking about not a physical oneness, but a spiritual oneness. God is one will, right? God is one character. God is one essence. And when you start to think of oneness primarily as spiritual rather than physical, the Trinity is still hard to understand, right? But it makes a little bit more sense. So that's the first thing that I would submit for your, for your consideration, okay? God is an eternal, perfect, loving relationship of three per persons, a relationship that is so perfect and so loving and so in sync that we can, we can genuinely say, God is one. So the second thing I would encourage you to think about if you're frustrated because you feel like the Trinity makes no sense is that the Trinity so defies human comprehension that it's hard to believe any human being would have come up with it. Why would any human being start off their whole story about the gospel of Jesus? Why would they start it off with the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, I have to believe that when John himself wrote that, he looked at it and went, oh, this is going to be a hard sell. <laughs> because that's not a statement that any human mind can just naturally receive and, and understand. And yet, John starts his gospel with those words. And, and what I want to suggest is that this is a sign that what we're reading is not some sort of human invention, but it is revelation from God. Uh, this first line in the Gospel of John, this is what happens when human language tries to express some divine mystery that has been divinely revealed, right? Sometimes all we can say is something that the mind can't fully grasp. One of the things I like to say is, imagine if you lived in a two-dimensional world, and then someone from a three-dimensional world was trying to describe the three-dimensional world to you. You know, like, in a two-dimensional world, my fingers are crossing each other. But in a three-dimensional world, they're not. And, you know, we live in a three-dimensional, or I guess if you consider time, four-dimensional space, God, God sees dimensions we don't see, right? So it makes sense that if God is trying to communicate to us, sometimes there's going to be things where we just go, I, I don't get it. Let's keep reading in the Gospel of John. In verse 3, 
Through him, meaning through the word, through Jesus, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So John is saying that Jesus is the author author of everything. He is the, the creator. He's the source of all light and life, all goodness and beauty. All of that comes from him. And then if we skip down to 14, this is where it clearly teaches the incarnation. It says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the one who made everything became a human being and lived among us. God the Son, second member of the Trinity, took on human flesh. That's the incarnation. And the miracle of Christmas, the miracle that's even bigger than the virgin birth, uh, is that the one through whom all things were made was born as a baby in Bethlehem. And he went on to, to grow up and live among us and eat and drink and work and teach and be tempted and eventually suffer and die. The song says, Jesus is our Emmanuel. And what that word Emmanuel literally means is God with us. Jesus was quite literally, because he is the incarnate deity, God with us. God making his dwelling among us. Now, you might wonder, okay, how can Jesus be God? How is that possible? God is all-powerful. But Jesus was, at least at one point, an infant. And I don't think he was like that infant from The Incredibles who can do anything. Uh, (laughs) He seemed very limited, right? God is all-knowing. But Jesus, the Bible says, had to learn as he grew up. God is everywhere, right? But Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a specific place at a specific time and location. So how can Jesus be God? It doesn't make sense. And what the Bible teaches is that, yes, Jesus is God, but in order for God to become incarnate, God had to radically humble himself. Uh, God the Son had to sacrifice a lot of his rights and privileges to become fully human, to become incarnate. Like those rights and privileges of omniscience and omnipresence. But when God became incarnate as Jesus, he was still truly God. He was still truly God. How could that be? Because his essence remained the same. His fundamental character did not change. You might have noticed that the song uses a strange word, Godhead. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And I didn't even know this until I looked into this. Um, I thought I knew what Godhead meant. I think I was wrong. Godhead is a fancy old word for the essence of God, the fundamental character, nature of God. That's the Godhead. 
So what this song is proclaiming is something the Bible proclaims as well, which is that the character of God, his fundamental essence, is revealed through the humble Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If you've been here at all very long, you've heard me say this a million times. Um, I'll read it, though. It says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, late in time, behold him come, uh, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. So do you hear that? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Believe it or not, the human incarnation of God, God radically humbled, is the radiance of God's glory. The incarnate deity is the best revelation of God's character, of his essence that we could ever have. You know, if we want to know what God is truly like, we cannot do better than looking at Jesus, the incarnate deity. And that tells us something very, very significant. If Jesus, the incarnate deity, is the exact representation of God's being, if it's Jesus that reveals the Godhead, the divine essence, that tells us that God's fundamental character is love, it's humility. God is sacrificial. God is generous. God is not distant or remote. God wants to be in relationship with us. God is powerful, yes. God is all-knowing, yes. God is everywhere, yes. But if we really want to know what God is like, we can't just know about his power. We can't just know that he's omni-this and omni-that. We have to know about who he is, his character, and his character is revealed through the incarnation. It's revealed through his willingness to humble himself and come down and meet us in the mess of human life. It's that radical, gracious, humble love. That radical, gracious, humble love is the glory of God. That's the glory of God. And it's God's radical, gracious, humble love that can rescue us from sin and death. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This Christmas, may we truly join with the angel's song in celebrating the king who is the incarnate God. Let's pray. Lord, at Christmas time, we're reminded of some of the deepest mysteries in our faith the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the Incarnation. And Lord, I want us to be able to acknowledge we can't fully understand these mysteries. But I pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes of faith to be able to receive them, Lord, and 
to take delight in them. Lord, we thank you uh, that you radically humbled yourself, took on human flesh and lived among us so that we might be saved, Lord. I pray that we would, we would worship and celebrate the fact that you took on human flesh uh, this Christmas. And we would take delight in what that reveals about who you are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.